This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland toku inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titorihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of CNF Legal in Whakatū Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners. It will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 Thank you for joining me for Episode 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Firstly, I want to say a big thank you to all the listeners who have been in contact with me with feedback about Episode 1. It's great to hear from you all, and please keep the feedback and requests coming. So last week we explored the term Deathwalker. For those of you who are listening for the first time, a Deathwalker is someone who walks the journey towards their own death as openly, courageously and as best they can. A death walker is also available to walk with someone else on their journey towards death, to walk with those who are supporting someone else who is dying, and to walk with those who are grieving, offering guidance and care to inform and empower them. So once again, I'd like to acknowledge all my fellow death walkers out there who might be listening, and over time, I hope to feature every one of you on the show. Coming up on Death Walker's Guide to Life, I'm going to be talking with author Jacqueline Bobletz about her new novel, Before You Knew My Name and her experiences of death, dying, and the afterlife. But before I do that, it's time for our first bookend, Death in Print. So in this segment, in each show, I talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. Not surprisingly, today I'm going to be talking about Before You Knew My Name, which was published by Alan Anunwan in Australia and New Zealand in May, and by Sphere in the UK in July. This debut novel, which attracted a bidding war, is extraordinary in so many ways. It's extraordinary because it straddles so many genres all at once. It's a whodunit, but it's a whodunit with a big difference. The story opens with two very different women, 18-year-old American Alice Lee and 30-something Australian Ruby, who both moved to New York City around the same time. While at first they appear to have little in common, we soon learn that they both feel a bit lost and lonely in the city and we gradually discover how men have mistreated them both. Then, while out jogging one day, Ruby discovers a body on the edge of the Hudson River and it turns her world upside down. She is still suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder when she decides she needs to seek out other finders of the dead. 
She goes to a trauma support group, which proves to be an ill fit, where she meets Lenny, who introduces her to the death club. Now, you might have heard of death cafes before, which are meetings where people, often strangers, gather to eat cake, drink tea and discuss death. A death club is a bit like this, although it's a smaller, more exclusive gathering of very different people who come together because they've been impacted by death in some way. Lenny is an embalmer at a funeral home. Josh came very close to dying in a cycling accident. And Sue, the giver of unsolicited advice, had a daughter who was killed in a car crash. When Ruby joins Death Club, they quickly become a tight-knit group of four and Before You Knew My Name becomes a study of friendship and how it fledges. But it's so much more than that. Our first-person narrator is Alice in the afterlife, who makes various attempts to make contact with Ruby and steer the Death Club's conversations in a certain direction. As the story unfolds, we learn more of Alice's backstory, what brought her to New York, and Ruby's gradual awakening about herself and an old relationship, with a new romance also thrown into the mix. Clementine Ford, author of Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, notes that in writing Before You Knew My Name, Bublitz has accomplished what is so rare in today's world. She has given voice to those women whose lives have been first ended by men and then reduced by public narrative to live on through the imagining of only their final moments. Before You Knew My Name is a page-turner. The first time I read it fast, couldn't put it down, then thoroughly enjoyed rereading it and savouring the insights. My copy is full of stick notes. But don't just take my word for it. Before You Knew My Name has an average rating of 4.11 out of 5 on Goodreads from almost 3,000 ratings. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I am the host and producer of the show. I'm now delighted to welcome Jacqueline Bublitz, who describes herself as a writer, feminist and arachnophobe. Jacqueline is also known as Rock. Actually, I'm going to ask, start by asking you um, to tell us the story of Rock. <laughs> it's a family um, a nickname that I've had since I was a baby. I'm the youngest of, gosh, this is a well-worn story in my family, but I'm the youngest of five kids um, and my siblings were mostly in their teens when I was born. Um, somewhere along the way, I, I they I, they neglected my parents to give me a name um, for a few different <laughs> reasons, um, which is a whole other story. And uh, so I was actually named by somebody else um, who had only boys and had wanted a girl, and she loved the name Rochelle, which is a, a you know a lovely French name. Um, but my siblings were not fond of it, um, especially with the Kiwi accent, and they uh, had uh, learnt that it meant little rock uh in French and the Rocky movie had come out and so they just started calling me Rocky actually so I'm Rocky and then over the years it's it's become rock and um Jacqueline I actually only have ever used in a work capacity so it's quite strange to have a book you know called before you knew my name and my name on the cover isn't something that I immediately recognize either yeah yeah well that's great to start with that family story because I want to um, my next question is about bringing in your father Johnny B um, into Mm -hmm. the studio into this conversation so I understand you were living in Melbourne when you got the call that he was unwell and flew home to Taranaki to help care for him in the last nine months of his life and During that time, you were, as well as caring for him, you were also working on the book. And Mm. I'm curious to know how that experience of being with him throughout that time influenced, influenced the book. 
Well, it influenced it um, in so many ways, um, and which is why um, the book um, is dedicated to him, d despite being very much a story about um, you know, women's experiences of the world. It's dedicated to my dad. Yeah, when I got the call in um, last day of 2018, or second to last day of 2018, um, I was working on a on a draft of um, what became Before You Knew My Name um, over that summer. I had an agent in London who was interested um, and had given me um, sort of like a revise and resubmit on, on the book, um, which I took as a, um, you know, a, an unenthusiastic yes, <laughs> which, <laughs> as it I would. Turn, which it did not turn out to be. But, um, so I was where I have was you know all set for um, you know a lovely summer in Melbourne, working on this book, feeling like a real writer for the first time because I had an agent waiting to see um, you know what I could make of her notes on this book. And then Dad got sick. I came home and quite soon after uh the agent um said that she didn't want to keep working with me um which felt like a bit of a double blow because my dad was in, in the hospital but also mattered a lot less than it might have at another time in my life because so much was going on um and so i think in 2019, I picked up the book a few times, put it back down again. One of the things that had really resonated from um, this agent, and she's a wonderful agent, but she did the right thing. The book wasn't wasn't ready at the time. One of the things she'd said, though, was that it, it wasn't emotional enough, which I had found really confronting because um, if anybody's ever spent any time with me, um, I am the most emotional person I know. I mean, I cry 10 times a day over you know, good things and good things and bad. And she had, uh, this particular agent had said, you know, the emotion was missing. Um, and I think after dad passed away, I went back to the book, uh, not, not consciously thinking about that, um, but very aware or very in touch with this whole new set of emotions, like this reservoir, reservoir, I can never say that word, reservoir of emotions um, that I had very much not known I had, that kind of soul deep grief that comes from from losing somebody you love. Um, and that edit, which took me three months, um, so from September when he passed away to, to New Year's when I sent it off to my now agent, Cara, it was all that emotion that was poured into it uh, that became um, very close to um, the version of the book that people now read. So, mm -hmm. yeah, And I think Dad um, would get a kick out of that, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was me. <laughs> Great. So at the beginning of the show, I've done a little book review of Before You Knew My Name. So I'm going to just jump into asking you a question um, so that, that our listeners would have been introduced to the characters a little bit already. So I'm going to jump in with a question about um, about sort of as we're well into the story. So soon after she's and it's and it's also really I'm trying my hardest not to have any spoilers in here, but I think this is all out there in the yeah. the back of the book blurb and, and the setup and, and, and the intro to the book. So yeah. soon after she's murdered, Alice desperately wants to make contact with Ruby and her new friends at the Death Club, which we'll talk about a bit more in a minute. And she wants them to explore the question, what happens after you die? So I'm going to ask you that question. What do you think happens? What do you think believe happens after and you die? 
You know, I think I wrote about it because I don't know. Uh, and so um, I often say with Before You Knew My Name, I was um, asking questions more than I was trying to provide answers. Um, and to use an example of, of another book that deals with a, uh, a posthumous or, a, you know, a narrator who's dead is um, The Lovely Bones, where there's a, a there's a heaven and then it's and it's very uh, descriptive for Ella Seawall does with that and the the one thing I knew even before Dad got set going into before you knew my name oh well, the story was that I wasn't going to have a heaven I wasn't going to explain where Alice was in a way that was either prescriptive or familiar to to anybody so that they could bring in their own notions um, which is a tricky it's like fine line that I, I was kind of walking um, and that is because I genuinely don't know myself and sometimes I wonder and certainly after dad died would it be easier to know, to have an idea, to have a you know a firm set of beliefs or rituals to follow um, after my dad passed away, and other times I think well there's um, something something in not knowing and having this great sense of possibility uh, about um, where dad might be, and and I certainly know you know I, and I, I say this and I borrowed it from Fox Mulder. <laughs> I think the dead are not are not lost to us. I love that. I remember hearing that line um, delivered so beautifully by David Duchovny. You know, I, I want to believe that the dead are not lost to us, and that has sort of summed up as much as I can say for for sure about what I think happens after you die. Mm. Hmm. You pose so many wonderful questions in this book, and and the the questions are just appear at the, the perfect moment i think and really add to mm. to the story um, one of the other ones you have in there is do you think people know when they die as it happens are they aware yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's another one we can't really know can we it's another no. mystery and mm. my with my dad um we were with him in the, the last 3 days of his life we had him at home and we were with him uh in the last probably five or six hours of his life, all of his children, um, so my siblings and I, my mom and the two dogs, and then my niece and my brother-in-law, we were in the room with him as he, um, <laughs> we, we joke that he took it literally about kicking the bucket because it was not uh, an easy death. Mm. Um, I'm not sure there is any kind, um, but it was you know, demonstrably, it was not an easy death until, until very near the end. And you know, it's it. I'm. I think I'm lucky in a way that there's not too many sort of traumatic memories of that time because I think the way that I've been able to process it is by asking those kinds of questions in the book because all of those very specific questions came in that last edit that I sent off after he died. Um, but you know, not this not knowing whether he knew exactly what was happening and getting the sense that he probably did um you know was something that that definitely kept me awake for a while after he passed on mm. I'm really interested in what you said about it wasn't an easy death and I, I I can really relate to that because when my first husband Steve died mm. and and it and he was in a lot of pain right up until the end and when and then I realized how angry I was about you know how you read in the paper in um, obituary you know in, in in death notices so and so died peacefully surrounded by their family and I'm like that's a lie it's <laughs> you know? such a, yeah it's such a, and I think maybe it depends on if yeah, if, you, if you think about the well more that 
the maybe right at the end there's a sense of peace and i certainly um felt that with dad uh very much at the end um and we we're talking you know, in the last few minutes we weren't even actually looking at him when he um actually you know time of death passed away um despite having been sort of very you know intimately you know acquainted with his body and what was happening for, for the last six or seven hours he just sort of slipped out of the room um while i was talking to my sister and um, so maybe that's what people um are talking about that last moment mm -hmm. or maybe they don't know and they want to believe and that's okay mm -hmm. too i suppose but yeah it does when you know that um death is not um you know pretty um mm. you can sometimes kind of roll mm. i mean i don't want to be mean about it and anyone else's grief but i sometimes mm. roll my eyes and like passed away peacefully i'm like mm. well, i hope so mm. but i doubt it <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and perhaps it's just part of that convention of using euphemisms and the language yeah. that people use because but out of a sense of wanting not to cause pain to to, to other people yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. worries them unnecessarily so sorry anybody listening like, oh what no <laughs> this is no, a euphemism no. free show so yeah <laughs> so one of the other questions you have and i and i think i remember reading somewhere um anyway i'll just ask the question do you think the dead try to communicate with us and if so how and i and i'm particularly i guess interested in in any sense that you've had any contact with with your father in in the after yeah my my sisters and I in particular, we talk about that quite a lot because one sister says he's not, he doesn't come to me at all. And I have had a couple of dreams about dad. They have been, um, you know, he hasn't come and given, he wasn't one to do that anyway. He didn't come and give me some great wisdom about life or <laughs> any, you know, um, anything like that. But I've, I know I've a couple of times I've woken up and thought that was different. That was like, we were, um, I could hear him or we were, we were hanging out and but I'm not because I'm not religious or even really particularly spiritual which is unusual for someone who's written a book that you know delves um quite deeply into just some of you know some quite spiritual themes um they pay a lot of attention to um other people's rituals and you know we I talk to Tui all the time Tui birds of you know send send messages off and they actually feature quite heavily um in my second book for better or worse um around you know around these either established or cultural notions of how the dead would communicate with us if if indeed they do and um, so I'm I was going to say susceptible to all those things just because um I'm part of me is always thinking that that is my own desire um and so i'm manifesting it like some kind of synchronicity um and pretend i understand more about jungian philosophy <laughs> than i do but um and then yeah there's a there's another part of me that thinks well why not why can't this be true that that was my dad you know like leaving a pebble in my bed or a feather you know outside my window those kinds of things yeah yeah um, in the book, um, there's a couple of, I, I mentioned before, um, Alice attempts to, to make contact with, with Ruby in several ways, but her words often get drowned out by everyday noises. And that's a really interesting idea that, you know, the busyness of life just sort of gets in the yeah. way of us being able to be in tune with, um, with that. 
Um, so I just want to jump now to talking. I mean, obviously, this conversation is very much focused on um, the elements that I think relate to the, the notion of being a de- death walker. Um, and there's so many other layers and parts of your book, and which I'm sure we'll have in our next conversation about the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ruby is still suffering. So, so Ruby has found... Um, the body of a young woman who's been murdered. And for mo- for a lot of the books, she just knows her as Jane Doe, but we know she's yeah. Alice. Um, and she's still, she, she naturally is suffering um, some post-traumatic stress disorder mm. from that from that experience um, and decides she needs to seek out the some other finders of the dead, is the way you <laughs> put it, which I, which I really liked. So first of all, she takes herself off to a trauma support group, which prov- proves to be an ill fit. Where she, but she meets Lenny there, um, who introduces her to the Death Club. So the Death Club, I love the idea of the Death Club, and it reminded me a bit of a Death Cafe, although it's a bit more mm. exclusive and enduring and regular than than perhaps a Death Cafe might be. Were you in a group? Have you ever been in a group like this, a Death Cafe or something similar? Because your depictions of the conversations and the way they they relate to each other feel so real. It's hard to believe it's merely a product of your imagination. Ah, <laughs> thank you. Um, I have never, I have not been to any kind of, I've been, been to, to, to therapy, for example, but let alone, you know, group therapy, individual therapy or anything. Um, I was aware of death um, salons and death cafes after I'd had the idea and then I was quite excited by that. I was like, oh, I could. And I did see that it, I was living in Melbourne at the time that in Collingwood, so in my neighbourhood, um, they were going to be having a salon. Um, and I was I chickened out going along, actually. Um, I'm not I'm not sure why, um, but it was, it was definitely on my radar and I did a little bit of reading about it because it fit so... Um, you know, so well with this idea that I'd had, um, although I always knew that my um, death club members would drink cocktails, not tea, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it would be much, a much more intimate affair. But I also could have, you know, peopled that group, you know, had 10 of them if I'd been able to, if it had been a different kind of book, um, because there were just so many interesting stories that you could, um, that you could bring in. But yeah, mm. no, I haven't, I've never been in, I'd, I did um, meet through someone I met on an airplane, um, a mortuary assistant. So I was able to get a lot of information from her, like a really clinical information that was so helpful. Um, Just one of those serendipitous moments of of meeting someone um, and blurting out my idea for a story and her saying, oh, my sister can can help you with that. but that, yeah, that, that's about the ex- that's mm. about the extent of it. It really did come those questions. There's a lot of iterations of Death Club, um, and uh, you know, the final um, product it very much comes from those questions I had after Dad died. Mm-hmm. So, in um, in addition to Ruby, there's um, Josh, who's the man who's almost died after a, a, mm-hmm. an accident. Um, Sue, whose daughter was killed in a car crash, and I love how you call her the giver of unsolicited advice. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and then there's Lenny, who is obviously the character that was based on on the person you met um, who worked in the mortuary and, yeah. and that. So did those characters, their, their stories and the reason they joined Death Club just sort of come out of, of, of imagination or, or were they based on stories of people that you knew there, it's a really good question, and there's a one character is um, 
based on a, a, a person whose permission I actually needed to get um, to use um, their story um, because a few years ago when I was just playing around with the idea, we sat down and I interviewed them about what had happened to them. Um, and I'm sure they thought at the time, well, this isn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> she's, you know, she's, she's, you know, always talking about writing this book and she never does. Um, but then I did and I had to contact them out of the blue and say, surprise, um, the you know, legal team at Hachette and um, Alan and Unwin want me to talk to you about whether you're comfortable with me using your story. And they were. Um, so I won't tell you which one, but one of them comes um, very much from a real story and I'm incredibly grateful and I always find it, um, it's a shame in a way that I that they you know understandably you know for their own reasons they they wanted to to stay private they wouldn't even let me thank them in the book um, but they're such a rich part of 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 the story um, the yeah the rest of it um, sort of I made I made up just just looking at the and looking at um, people around me and what they'd gone through and, and I again I could have had you know ten more characters. Um, using that method, you know, sort of observational method. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of um, wonderful conversations between your Death Club members. Um, but the quote that I've picked out that I just wanted to share with our listeners um, kind of sums up what they, what they accomplish as a group. Um, the very existence of Death Club is proof that some conversations are best reserved for the people who understand you. For those who know that proximity to death fundamentally changes you. Distancing yourself from death changes you too. So I think that's a really you know, mm. fascinating, wonderful, con- you know, I could write a whole per- essay on that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Such a yeah. lovely, lovely piece. So your book straddles several genres and is rich with subtext. Um, so I'm curious if you know how different audiences have responded. So, you know, there's obviously the crime fiction and the true crime folk. Yeah. Um, and then there's those who, like me, are really into death literacy and writing about death and dying and, and exploring open, courageous, how we have open and courageous conversations. Uh, I, I just think it, it straddles so many different genres. So I'm interested if you've had any particular feedback from, from some types of readers as opposed to others. Yeah, well, I mean, I still read. I'm, I've stopped now, but I still read all my Goodreads reviews, or I still check them now. And um, well, and it'd be hard to keep up with them all. There's so many of them. I think 375 yeah. last time I looked. It's, and <laughs> I, I check the ratings each sort of every couple of days just to see. Um, and what I and I remember telling um, my publisher this, and they're like, "Do not." But I would purposefully click on the um the low rating reviews just to see what they had to say and I I still do it and it it doesn't sort of make my heart sort of drop or speed up anymore oh it's interesting because you do see very different um like reactions different camps um, from readers there's the um crime reader uh response where they're like I wouldn't I'm not entirely sure that it's a you know full, the type of book I would normally read, but I really loved being introduced to sort of more, um, which isn't to say that crime fiction isn't character driven, but this book is you know I didn't pitch it as a crime novel; it was very much a character driven story. So there's been a really lovely positive response there. There's been a, a wonderful response, in particular to the themes about women's safety and you know navigating our safety in the world. Are that you know, it was always really moving when people write to me and, and um, or send me, you know, a private message to tell me about how they've responded to that. There's some people, a 
who just really don't like it and feel really um, don't like the characters, don't like um, don't like how far fetched they one you know they couldn't suspend their disbelief um, with with what happened to Alice and, and I can generally tell. Um, when someone in particular like writes a review, I haven't had anyone speak to me face to face about it. I can generally tell when someone writes a review and they don't like it, which part they don't like. But there's some controversial bits in there about, you know, relationships and uh, bad choices and things like that. Uh, and then there's there's um, a few readers who dislike how sort of deep they thought I was trying to go with um, these questions about death and the very things that resonate with some people to put other people off. So but having a book that, that crosses genres, I've had to get pretty thick skin because you can get really different responses and overwhelmingly positive, but there's definitely been a, you know, a through line of, um, you know, like what, what does this writer think she was doing? Well, they are by a long shot in the very small minority, aren't they, out of all yeah, of them? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting because most critiques are, are, are yeah, in, they I can place them together. I can see, you know, I can see where the reader is coming from. The only time sometimes I get a bit offended is when they don't like the character. I'm like, no, how can, how can you not like Alice Lee? Like she's an embodiment of so many good things from my, you know, perspective or so many um, hopeful things. Good's a bit of a sort of a, a diluted word. And, um, but yeah, I mean, each to their own when it comes to how they relate to characters, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That whole layer of, um, the, essentially the feminist story in it there which does certainly doesn't use capital f anywhere in the in the, in the <laughs> book but it's yeah. it's clear you know you explore all the issues around who gets noticed and who doesn't and yeah. um you know the, the the kind of white woman missing white woman syndrome where you know attract all their media attention as at the expense of other yeah, crimes that happen all the time which is i think it really th- makes it a very very thoughtful book Thank you. I'm, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm grateful that I found a way to drop some of that in there. Yeah, without having that sort of capital F feminist or mm. um, sort of placard or shouting, sort of waving. It's not my space to take up, you know, when it comes to talking about these things. That's something I'm really conscious of. However, I found a way to sneak some of it in there. And that makes me, um, if I can, I don't use this word often, but it makes me quite proud that I was able to get that. Um, get some of those messages across and it was part of a two book deal when you got signed up for this so tell us briefly about your next book oh so no name it still doesn't have a name otherwise I'd I'd share it here Um, I am in the final stages of of a great big structural edit um, that will go off to my publishers in the next few days this one's set in New Zealand um, which is quite terrifying actually i was just saying to um my sister that it's it was easier to set a book in new york you know where i'd spent a few months and it is to set a book in in you know the place that i that i grew up but it's very much about a character who comes to new zealand um as an adult with no experience um or frame of reference for new zealand she ends up in a small town uh where her mother has passed away um she thought her mother was in bali at a cancer uh, integrative cancer treatment clinic uh, but it turns out she was in a small town in New Zealand a made-up town I should add um, in terms of the book um, and the daughter comes to her mother's hometown and um, 
tries to piece together the the mystery not only of her mother but herself which is so it's it's not it's one of those stories about you know identity um small towns rather than big cities um the claustrophobia of a small town as opposed to that sort of anonymity of 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 new york it's quite an equal and opposite story to before you knew a name i think um and at first i was quite wary or cautious of 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 be you know bringing in too many um themes that were similar but actually now i kind of almost see it like a sequel the characters are completely different uh it deals um with different forms of gendered violence uh it deals with different um very much a different cultural framework being set in new zealand and but it is about found family it is about grief and death it is about gendered violence so it's yeah it's pretty much the um the little sister so, to before you knew my name and any idea of when it's going to be published well i think that i need to hurry up and finish this <laughs> um the last series to cross before <laughs> but um hopefully roughly the same time frame as before you knew my name it would be nice to have it out um mid next year Oh, um, how exciting. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, they'll, yeah. They'll, it might be different. You know, the, it'll be a long time before it comes out in the States because the um, Before We Knew My Name doesn't come out until next November. Um, but Australia and New Zealand, they've told me, um, you know, we, not until it's ready, but I'm trying very hard to get it ready. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, best of luck with that and really look forward to it. Yeah. And I will keep all um, my listeners up to date on when it's coming out on, on the website. So thank you very much for your time today. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I've just been chatting with author Jacqueline Bublitz about her debut novel, Before You Knew My Name. Now it's time for Death on Screen, where I briefly review a film, TV series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying. Today I want to talk about Dead to Me, which streams in Australia and New Zealand on Netflix. Dead to Me opens with a hot-headed widow called Jen, who's played by Christina Applegate, who is searching for the hit-and-run driver who mowed down her husband when she meets Judy, who is played by Linda Caradellini, at a grief support group. Jen is a real estate agent and functional alcoholic who is determined not only to find who killed her husband Steve, but decides that getting a stop sign installed at the corner of where he was killed will somehow make her feel better. Judy at first appears to be an innocent, somewhat naive and eccentric optimist, but it soon becomes apparent she has a secret or two. And it's telling that the actor who plays Jen's dead husband, James Marsden, is listed as one of the key cast members. Without giving away any spoilers, and this show is full of plot twists, increasingly absurd plot twists in some cases, this story is at its heart about female friendship and what we do to distract ourselves to avoid feeling pain. Jen uses all of the typical coping mechanisms, alcohol being right up there, and steadfastly refuses to embrace the opportunities presented in the support group to reflect and examine her own inner life. The show is also laugh-out-loud funny. The script writing is tight and inventive. There's lots of subtext with um, not too many subplots. Unlike other whodunit crime series, we do not move methodically through cast members, seeing them set up as the killer. And the show is also delightfully free of red herrings. Dead to Me is a deep dive into two characters, and if you, like me, love Jen and Judy, then you'll love the show. 
Season one and two were both available on Netflix, and in July 2020, the series was renewed for a third and final season, although production has recently stalled. In August, in the midst of filming, star Christina Applegate announced on Twitter that she was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, or MS. She tweeted, A few months ago, I was diagnosed with MS. It's been a strange journey, but I have been so supported by people that I know who also have this condition. It's been a tough road, but as we all know, the road keeps going, unless some asshole blocks it. <laughs> and Christina's clearly got a sense of humour in real life. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Find out more about the show and how you can follow me, Kerry Sunderland, at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545 8080 or visit their website, cflegal.co.nz. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.